Matthew chapter 5, we're making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, the luck of the draw on Father's Day, I get to talk to you all about the topic of lust. So uh, buckle in, it, uh, hopefully it's going to be a good one. <laughs> um, we've been making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and um, what we've seen so far uh, is that, that Jesus is giving us a healthy dose uh, of the law showing us um, really how, how we don't measure up to his perfect standard, kind of crushing us uh, with the law. But, but also, you know, our, our goal as preachers is, is always to bring some redemptive peace to us. So, so today there's, there's probably going to be some crushing of the law uh, to you all, and, and, and not just the guys, but hopefully to all of us. Uh, and then uh, as we kind of make our way to the end, there will be some redemptiveness uh, to this section as well. Uh, but let's read uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. Jesus says this, he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And so we have to do a little bit of work here to, I think, understand the weight uh, that Jesus is trying to, to crush us with with the law. In verse 27, he says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. In order to understand this, uh, I want to take a few moments here and kind of build a biblical ethic for why, why that's such a bad thing, right? And so uh, we're told, uh, this is really a verbatim um, repeat of Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, the Ten Commandments that says that you shall not commit adultery. It's the Seventh Commandment. So it's one of the ten big ones. So this is kind of a big deal, right? Um, but also the Tenth Commandment, Exodus twenty seventeen, says that you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And so, so we get kind of a dose here of, of the seventh commandment and the tenth commandment in the command not to commit adultery, but also specifically not to covet uh, a neighbor's wife. And so, so we ask the question, uh, what is adultery? And, and the simple definition of adultery is marital infidelity. Um, but in order to understand why marital infidelity is such a big deal, this is where we've got to build a, a biblical uh, ethic for marriage, a biblical ethic uh, for sex inside of marriage. And so Genesis one twenty eight. if we go all the way back to the beginning of, of time as we know it, the beginning of uh, recorded history as we know it, uh, God speaks into nothingness and creates something. You, you know the story if you've been you know, through Sunday school or church any amount of time. You know that God spoke into nothingness and said, let there be, and things appeared, right? Let there be light, let there be the plants, let there be the fish, let there be the bugs, let there be the stars and the moon and the sun and all these things, and God spoke it into existence. And at the pinnacle of creation, uh, God created humanity, created Adam and Eve created Adam first, and, and he said that it's not good that man should be alone, and so he created Eve uh, as a companion uh, for Adam. And he said this to them upon creation, Genesis one twenty eight. he says that God blessed them, meaning Adam and Eve, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over everything that moves on the earth." And so God gives them these commands, right? He creates humanity, uh, tells them to, to be fruitful and multiply, uh, to subdue the earth, to have dominion over it um, as caretakers of his creation. 
And so we can draw an ethic from that. Um, that, that God said it's not good for man to be alone, and so he created uh, Adam and Eve to be together, uh, gave them uh, a primary command to procreate, right, to be fruitful and multiply, uh, and then to be caretakers of all that he created. In Genesis 2.24, as we, we zoom in a little more to the creation narrative, we're told that a man should leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and that they, the two, man and wife, will become one flesh. Uh, furthermore, we have a whole book of the Bible devoted to uh, the enjoyment of sexual activity within marriage. And so we put all of this together. We, we could spend a lot of time talking about this, and we just don't have time today. But we put all of this together, and, and we can pretty easily uh, build an ethic uh, of, of heterosexual monogamous marriage and sex being enjoyed within that union, right? That's, that's the short of it. There, like I said, a lot to be said, but that's, that's the short of it, that we can pretty quickly uh, build this ethic uh, with a quick scan of the Bible. And so God has given us this prescription uh, for our good and for his glory, right? Um, we live in a society today where people would maybe hear this and, and maybe scoff at it and say that that's too narrow. Uh, people might say that it's antiquated or out of date. People might say that, that as a society or culture, we've moved past this. Uh, people would hear that and think that's, that's way too restrictive, uh, for how we live today. And, and they would say that the enjoyment of sex outside of what we just built is okay. And not only okay, but it's, it's our right to explore that freedom uh, as free people who shouldn't be constrained in that way. If you think about uh, the ills of our society, or things that we would consider the ills of our society, a lot of it has to do with, with bucking against this biblical ethic that we just built, right? A- abortion, it's it's bucking against this ethic that we just built. Homosexuality, it's bucking against this ethic that we just built and all the things that come along with, with those things. So God, in his infinite wisdom, again, for our good and for his glory, has, has given us these restrictions, if you will, for a purpose. And he's given us the good gift of marriage and sex and given it to us to enjoy within these boundaries Again, for our good and for his glory. And anything outside of that, the Bible would call sinful. The Bible would say uh, is wrong. This would include things, and I don't want to you know, go too far in the weeds on this, because again, there's a lot that could be said, but this would include uh, any kind of sex outside of marriage. The Bible says it's, it's sinful. It's not God's design for human flourishing. Sex outside of, of heterosexual monogamous marriage, Sinful cohabitating and living together as if married but not being married, sinful. Homosexuality, sinful, like the list could go on and on and on of of what God says is not good and is not right. And it's not that God's a curmudgeon, it's not that he's a prude. Tim Keller talks about how the fish can live as long as the fish lives within the right boundaries. The fish is meant to live in the water. right? But the second, like a fish could grow legs and walk out of the water and onto the ground, it wouldn't take long and the fish would be done. And the fish was meant to live with certain restrictions for its own good and for its own enjoyment. It's the same kind of thing here that God has given us these, I don't like the word restrictions, but God has given us these boundaries for our good and for his glory. And as sinful, rebellious human beings, we buck against those and we say, no, that's not enough. God gave Adam and Eve all of creation to subdue, 
all of creation to tame, all of creation to be the caretakers of, all of creation for their enjoyment. And he just says it like it's all yours, but don't eat the fruit of this one tree. Then what do they do? I didn't want it before, but now that you said no, that's the thing that I want. That's our human nature. It's our human nature. And it's our human nature uh, as it has to do with this biblical sexual ethic. And so God has given us these, these boundaries for our good and for his glory for a purpose by his intentional good design. And as sinful, rebellious human beings, we say, no, we want, we want more. Don't, don't res- put any restrictions on me. Matter of fact, the second that you put restrictions on me, then I want to go do that thing more than I ever wanted to do it just because it's a restriction. It's our sin nature coming through. Now, I realize that that probably there are some in the room who have walked down this path of bucking God's sexual ethic, a biblical ethic. And and my goal today is is not not to make anybody feel guilty, not not to to poke at wounds or or anything uh, along those lines. Like I said before, we're going to get to some redemption in this before we end our time today and show how God redeems our sinfulness. I also realize that there there might be some sitting here who have not walked down this path, and you might be feeling pretty good about yourself right now. And rest assured for, for your, your pridefulness and your self-righteousness, there's going to be a dose of humility today as well that will be good uh, for all of us. And so we kind of we have a mix of people in the room. And, and for the ones that have, have walked the path of, of bucking against God's design, uh, there's redemption. For the ones that haven't walked that path, you don't have to be prideful about it and, and say, look at me, I haven't done that thing. Right? So, so God brings redemption and humility uh, to all of us in doses that we need. And so understanding the ethic that God has given us, the bounds that he's given us within which to live. When Jesus makes this statement, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, you shall not commit adultery. That now all of a sudden carries some weight that maybe it didn't carry a few minutes ago. It carries some weight that we should not do that. But Jesus, and here comes the dose of humility for you that are feeling good about yourselves in verse 28, he says, but... I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so what Jesus is saying is it doesn't matter if you've walked down the path of infidelity. If you've even given it a thought, you're just as guilty. I've heard many pastors say over the years that it's not our thoughts so much that matter, but it's our actions, right? Think, but don't do. And Jesus is really, he's turning that upside down right now. He's, he's not only saying don't do, but he's saying don't even think about it also. And he's saying that if you have thought about it, that you're just as guilty as if you had done it. And I don't, I don't think, you know, Jesus is speaking here um, seemingly to the guys, but I don't think this is meant just for the guys. I think this is meant for all of us. Right, so ladies, you're not off the hook either. You can't sit here. Maybe you're giving the elbow to your guy right now. This is for all of us. If you've even looked at another person with lustful intent and you've entertained some thoughts, that's where it starts, is what Jesus is saying. That's, that's the slippery slope that leads to the actual committing of adultery. It starts with the mind. It starts with the thoughts. And Jesus is telling us that if those thoughts have even entered into your mind, then you sit here guilty as charged. And I stand up here saying this knowing that I'm as guilty as you are. Who of us in this room is not guilty of entertaining thoughts that we ought not entertain? 
we're all guilty of that. I don't have to ask for a show of hands because I know that if that every hand would go up, and if your hand doesn't go up, then you're just not being truthful with yourself, right? We're all guilty as charged. And so Jesus has this way of just immediately cutting to the heart of the matter. John in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, reminds us of this. He says that all that is in the world... And then he gives us three things that kind of encapsulate all that is in the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then he tells us that the world is passing away along with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so John characterizes all of the things that we struggle with into one of three categories. The things that we can feel, the things that we can see, and the pride that we get in taking what we think is ours. Those, everything kind of boils down to, to these things. And now Jesus is talking about a specific, a specific sexual ethic here. John is speaking in more broad terms, but, but this fits because we all have desires of our flesh. We have things that we desire in our flesh, the things that make us feel good, right? The, th- the things that we do that, that bring feelings of joy to us that make us feel good. The things that we see, the things that we look at that, that probably oftentimes we know that we ought not to indulge in. And again, the pride that comes from, from saying, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. And nobody's going to put any restrictions on me. John reminds us that there's going to be a day where the desires of our eyes, the desires of our flesh, and the pride of life, those things are all going to go away because we're going to be so enamored with the glory of God. Right? The one day that's going to come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In that moment, these things that we desire now, that we desire to feel, that we desire to see, that we take pride in, those things are they're not going to be present in that moment when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those things are going to pass away. And so what matters in the here and now, John tells us, is that we do the will of the Father. And when we do the will of the Father, when we engage our lives in doing the will of the Father, those are the kinds of things that are going to abide forever. Those are the things that are not going to pass away, engaging in the will of the Father. And so according to Jesus' words, according to John's words, who, who can stand amongst this, amidst this indictment? None of us, right? We, we should all be here, sitting here, feeling guilty as charged, whether you've actually walked down the path of infidelity or not. And so what we, what we have to this point is a level playing field that we're all guilty. We're all guilty of committing adultery, either the physical act or the thought that leads to the physical act. So now that we've leveled the playing field a bit, now what? Now what? Jesus goes on to have some kind of harsh words for us in verse 29. He says that if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. That, that's a harsh statement. Do, do you think that Jesus is actually saying, take something and pluck out your eye and throw it away? Jesus is speaking to a culture who, um, you know, val- like the right was good. The right eye was the good eye. The right hand was the good hand. Right, the right eye is dominant. The right hand is dominant. What Jesus is saying is, if your eyes cause you to sin, take even your best eye. Don't, don't take the left eye, the, the 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 inferior eye. Take take the best eye. Take the best eye and gouge it out and throw it away. This tells us something about the seriousness of sin. Right, we we all are big fans of God's grace. 
I love the idea of God's grace, and I love the idea of God's grace coming my way. I struggle a little bit with God's grace going your way because, you know what, I, I deserve it more than you do most days. <laughs> but, but we love the idea of God's grace. We don't love so much the idea of, of judgment. and We don't love so much the idea of talking about sin. But Jesus is telling us here, in your battle with sin, realize that it's serious enough. Sin is such a big deal. It's such an affront to God. And not just this sin, but I think sin in general. But it's such a big deal that you should take as drastic of a measure as you can to cut off the sin in your life, to mitigate the sin in your life. Now, none of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. But Jesus goes on to tell us that it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And so this tells us a little bit of something about not only the seriousness of sin, but what sin does to us and the effect that sin has on us. It's our sin that can lead us to hell. And again, we have to go back to the beginning to understand this in Genesis. God gave Adam and Eve dominion over everything, charged them with being caretakers of all that he created. Everything was theirs for their enjoyment, for their good, except for this one tree. And what did they do? They rebelled against God. They said no to what God told them to do, thereby sin entering into the world. And as a result of sin entering into the world, death came into the world and disease came into the world and sickness came into the world and a brokenness of relationship between creation and creator came into the world. That's why this is a big deal. That's why this is a huge deal. The relationship between creation and creator for a time was perfect. It was unmarred. There was nothing between creation and creator until... Adam and Eve rebelled against God until the creation rebelled against the Creator. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the entire problem of humanity, the entire problem of sin, is that we've elevated the creation over and above the Creator. We get the order wrong. That's the entire problem of sin, and that's, that's what's going on here. Elevating a good thing that God has given us to being more important than God Himself. And it's that sin that leads us, that condemns us to hell. It condemns us as sinners who have committed treason against a holy God. That makes us deserving of hell. And so Jesus is telling us something about the seriousness of sin and something about how we engage in the battle with our sin, that we ought to take the most drastic means necessary to cut off the sin in our life. He goes on to say that if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Again, it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. If we believe as Christians, as followers of Christ, that God is eternal, and if we believe in, in the eternal weight of glory that Glenn mentioned earlier today, if, that, if that's a real thing, if that's a true thing, this time that we have on this earth, the here and the now, it, it's just a little bit in the scope of eternity, a blip on the radar in the scope of eternity. And so can we battle sin for the 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years that we might have on this earth? Can we battle sin in such a way as Jesus is talking about, looking forward to that eternal weight of glory? Knowing that, that maybe if I miss out or, or seemingly miss out on some things in the here and now, what's to come is so much greater. The Bible tells us that we can't even begin to fathom what God is preparing for us in eternity. 
We can't wrap our minds around it. We can't see it. We can't even think about it as vivid of an imagination as we might have. We can't even perceive of what God is preparing for us. That thought ought to inform how we battle our sin. The eternal weight of glory. John Stott in his commentary, I think, has a helpful paragraph here. Speaking of this passage, he says, what does this involve in practice? What does it involve gouging out the eye and cutting off the hand? He says this, he says, let me elaborate and so interpret Jesus' teaching. If your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your eyes and the objects that you see, then pluck out your eyes. That is, don't look. Behave as if you had actually plucked out your eye and flung them away and were now blind so that you could not see the objects which previously caused you to sin. Again, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your hands, the things that you do, or your feet, the places that you visit, then cut them off. That is, don't do it. Don't go. Behave as if you had actually cut off your hands and your feet and flung them away and were now crippled and so could not do the things or visit the places which previously caused you to sin. This is the meaning of mortification. Big word. Mortification means looking at our sin realizing that it's committing treason against God, that it's a serious thing, that our sin leads us to hell, that it's our sin that breaks the relationship between creation and creator, and taking whatever measures necessary to mitigate that sin so as to not break the relationship between creation and creator. Not engaging in the things that we know we ought not to engage. And I think for most of us, usually doesn't work out to where later you realize, oh, I shouldn't have done that thing. Sometimes maybe. But for the most part, in the midst of it, you know. You know that you shouldn't do that thing or you shouldn't entertain that thought or you shouldn't look or you shouldn't go, whatever it is. We know. We're not dumb. We know. But we justify in the moment why to look, why to go, why to entertain the thought. And, And what John Stott is talking about here is taking whatever means necessary to not do the thing, to not entertain the thought, to mortify our sin, to realize that it's a serious deal, to realize that it's serious business. Now, now, why is all this important? We've kind of been asking that from the beginning. Again, we, we live in a society that, that maybe would scoff at a lot of things that I've said today, that might push back against a lot of things that I've said today. I read the other day, this is, might be a new term for some of you, a couple, consists of two people. Well, now there's a thing called a thruple, three people. And it's because people are bucking against the sexual ethic that God has given us. It was a thruple that they interviewed out of the United Kingdom talking about how great it is to be in this relationship, committed relationship. Like that was their argument. Like who cares as long as we're committed to one another? We're not just out throwing ourselves at anybody, anytime, wherever, but, but we're three people that are in a committed relationship. It's not God's design. It's not good. The thrust of this article was that, well, this is a good thing, and this is kind of a new, a new era, right? We, we've arrived at this new way of thinking. Uh, I read articles all the time where, where people make the argument, you know, who, who, what business is it of mine if um, you know, a homosexual couple wants to be in a committed relationship, committed, monogamous with one another? It's not God's design. It's not God's good design. Outside of the lines that God has given us in which we ought to live for our good and for his glory. I'm not here to, to condemn anybody. I think the church, by and large, has done kind of a crummy job of loving people that don't think and live the way that we think and live. Now, 
we have truth, and, and I'm not talking about sweeping truth under the rug or anything like that, but, but we, we've, I think, have done a kind of a crummy job of, of truth and love being together, right? We can be really truthful, and sometimes the truth is a sledgehammer. We, we can be really loving, or at least we think we're being really loving by not speaking the truth, but really the Bible tells us that you can't separate one from the other, right? And so, so the truth with love, like that's where we've kind of done a crummy job as the church, speaking to these issues in society, but why, why does it matter? It matters because God has given us good restrictions, good boundaries. God has given us a good design for human flourishing in heterosexual monogamous marriage and sex being enjoyed within that boundary. That's God's good design. And there's nothing restrictive about it. We, we flourish as human beings when, when we color inside the lines that God has given us. Ephesians chapter 5 gives us a blueprint for this. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. And then Paul goes on to quote Genesis saying, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So Paul gives us this ethic of what it looks like inside of marriage, tying it way back to the beginning with God's good design. And then he ends this section by saying this mystery is profound. What's the mystery that he's talking about? He's talking about husbands and wives and how they interact with one another inside the bounds of marriage. And he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So as Christians, when we engage in monogamous, heterosexual marriage and maintain our fidelity to it, it's an act of faith, trusting that what God says is good is actually good. And it shows something to the world about who God is. Christian marriage specifically shows the world the relationship, a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. This is ultimately why this matters. The moment that Christ becomes unfaithful to the church, we then have permission to become unfaithful in marriage. But we know, I say that, knowing that, that Christ, there's never going to be a time when Christ is unfaithful to the church. If Christ were going to be unfaithful to the church, it would have happened a long time ago because we've given him ample reason. We've given him ample reason to throw his hands up and say, forget these people. We have. And he's faithful. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Bible tells us. So he, there's never going to come a moment where Christ is unfaithful to the church. And so... Marriage is good just for society, even if it's between two unbelievers. Marriage is a good thing the way that God has designed it. But marriage between Christians from one believer to another, we get the chance to show the world about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in the way that we interact in marriage. That's why it matters when Jesus says, not only you shall not commit adultery, but when he goes on to say, like, even the thought that enters into your mind, that's not good. It matters because of this. It matters because of this, this picture. And, and so again, may, maybe the playing field is a bit leveled here. Maybe we're all feeling some guilt. Maybe we're all feeling like we've blown it. And we have. 
Every single one of us has blown it in something that has come up today. But here's, here's where the redemptive piece of it comes in for us. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 8, a really concise definition of the gospel. It says that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. This is an indictment on all of humanity. A pretty scathing indictment on all of humanity. But, it goes on, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. So the bad news, we've all blown it. We're all, we're all guilty, right? The Bible tells us to take captive our thoughts. That's a hard thing. You ever try to take captive your thoughts? You ever tried not to think about something that you know you ought not to think about? That's hard. If you have figured that out, come up to me afterwards, please, and tell me how you do it. I mean, that's a hard thing. My, my mind doesn't shut off. I, I got to wind down for a long time at night just to kind of slow my mind. So I, I'm just, the wheels are always spinning. It's hard, it's hard for me to shut it off. Maybe you're like that too. Sometimes I think about good things. Sometimes I'm strategizing about, you know, just things in life and things in the church and things at work. Other times I'm just stewing on things that I don't need to stew on that kind of get my blood boiling. And those especially are the moments, like it's hard to shut it off. It's hard. But, but I'm, I'm reminded, especially when I think about those things that get my blood boiling of, of what we just read. There was a day that I was foolish, or at least more foolish than I am now. There was a day that I was more disobedient than I am now. There was a day that I was led astray and blind and, and slaves more so to my passions than I am now. All of these things. But God in His goodness and His loving kindness, He, he saved me. Not because He looked at me and said, I need you on my team. Like there was a day that I thought that was true of myself. There was a day where I would have said, like God's lucky to have me. Long time ago, but... That nevertheless, there was a day that that was my thinking. The older I get, the more mature I get, the more I realize the truth of what we just read, that God looked at me and it's like, I don't need you on my team, but I'm going to pick you anyway. <laughs> not because of anything you've done, not because you deserve it, not because you're good, but because I'm good, right? Because he's good, because he's merciful, because he's gracious, and that he has chosen to wash and to renew me and to renew you in our sinfulness, in, in our blowing of it, right? This is, this is the redemptive piece of it that we've been waiting for. He poured out His Holy Spirit upon us richly so that we would be justified, so, so that we would be in the heavenly court of law, the gavel would swing in our favor because of what Jesus has done, not because of what I've done. J Jesus, He knows my thoughts. You all can look at me and see things that I do, but you don't know what's in my head. Jesus knows what's in my mind, and he loves me anyway, regardless of the things that I think that nobody else knows about. 
And not only that, he, he has made you and I heirs with him. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that he'll spend eternity pouring out his richness towards us in kindness. That we can't even begin to fathom the richness of Christ, what, what we will inherit as followers of Christ. So bad news, we've all blown it. Good news that God, God has redeemed us or made a way for us to be redeemed in our blowing of it. And it matters what Jesus is saying in terms of not committing adultery because especially as Christians, we show something to the world about who Christ is and about the relationship between Christ and the church. And it's honestly probably one of the greatest evangelistic tools that we have at our disposal that we don't use because we don't think of it that way. But we're told this profound mystery is meant to show the world about who Christ is in the way that a Christian husband and a Christian wife interact with one another. And Pastor David's going to talk about next week what, what happens if the unthinkable happens. So let that be the cliffhanger for next week to come back and listen to the rest of the story. <laughs> but it matters. It matters because God is faithful to us, that he redeems us, that he loves us even at our worst. And that's why somebody like Jesus can be the one to say, don't commit adultery. Because he's, he's the faithful one. He's the one that, that has been faithful to his bride when his bride has been unfaithful to him. So he's the one that can rightfully... I can stand up here and say, don't commit adultery, knowing that like, for all of us, like at least in our minds, we've blown it. But maybe more than that, Jesus, even in his thinking, has not blown it. So he's the one that can say, don't do that. Because he's also the one that can say, if you have done that, then you can come to me for redemption. You can be redeemed. You can be forgiven your sin. And he's the one that can say, I've designed marriage, Christian marriage, to be kind of a microcosm of that truth, a microcosm of the truth of redemption, a microcosm of the truth of forgiveness, a microcosm of the truth of faithfulness and fidelity, especially when it's hard. That's why it matters. And so I would ask you to, to consider for yourself what, whether you've walked, walked the path of infidelity or whether you've only thought about walking the path of infidelity, to consider Christ's redemptive work in your life, to consider Christ's redemption of you in your sin and let it cause you uh, to feel the weight of your sin, yes, but more so to feel the weight of the redemptive nature of Christ and who he is and what he's done for you. God, we're thankful for today. Thankful that you uh, are a redeemer. Thankful that you know everything about us that there is to know, yet you love us anyway. God, we're thankful that you know our hearts and you know our minds. You know the things that nobody else knows about us. Yet you choose to be merciful towards us and gracious towards us. You choose to love us, uh, even in the moments when we're not all that lovable. And so God, help us uh, as followers of Christ um, to revel in the redemption that you provide for us. God, help us to be uh, messengers into the world of grace and mercy. Help us to stand for truth. Help us to speak the truth in love to those around us as we engage in the culture wars that are all around us. But more than that, God, help us uh, to be lights of the gospel uh, within our marriages, within our families, uh, that show people who you are and what you've done for us simply by the way that we interact with one another. And help us also, God, to have opportunities to speak up and to declare the truth of the gospel to people around us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.